Brick Moon Fiction presents Children of the Red Feathered Ga by Brian Aiello Narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle Called Bao since birth, he smells dead fish and the funk of low tide as he moves through the tree line towards the beach. He wipes sweat and flies from his brow, surprised a breeze does not caress his face. No breeze to remind him of freshly shucked oysters slurped from the half-shell as it has since he was a boy. No, the ocean air is heavy as he plants his feet on the berm watching his clan gather fish and shells from the vanished water. He was told to expect this miracle. It's just gone, his little raisin of a father-in-law said with a toothless smile as he rushed out of the family's shared hut with an empty basket. He sees him there now, basket full, trudging back to shore pulling one foot after another from the muck with loud slurps. Others on the white sands clean their free lunch already. The atmosphere is joyful. One of the elders passes around his personally made fermented Luahuang water to gain favor for later when there is food to eat and faces are fast turning flushed and primed for fun as a result. Yet somewhere deep in his mind, Bao remembers stories of the sea disappearing, of an angry god coming to grab the people of the ferry, never to be seen again. And he feels another tremor. It could be that it comes from somewhere deep inside his soul. He notes the sun shining on the silver scales of flopping fish, this bright sparkle. He is almost tempted to go into the soft muddy sand himself and gather the fish still flopping there and forget this horrible quivering he feels in his bones as if something far away was trying to shake the very world apart. But it stops on its own as some of the fish have also stopped moving. Those he would leave. The others, though, seem quite lively and it's them that pique his interest. His mouth waters at the thought of freshly caught fish fillets draped over small steaming balls of soft black wild la huang. This could save months of work in the task of providing for calorie needs. His is a family of nine, five children and two elders. The elders are An's parents. His oldest son is being shopped around as a husband, and soon maybe he'll think the number is quaint when the grandchildren start pouring in. With this much food prepped for the coming months, he may finally finish some of the projects he can only work on when time aids him to do so. Maybe now he can finish the submerged plot of land on wants in which to plant some of the baby Huahuang sprouts she is always growing. They find the seed in the jungle, sprouting from the murky water. It grows in large patches, and the clan has been guarding its use so never to fully exhaust one specific spot. If they don't take all of it, it always comes back and yields even more bounty. So why couldn't we try and grow a larger patch closer to home? An's voice enters his thoughts. I could have a dozen sprouts going when Chu Kui glows full and bright in the night sky. All we need is a clear patch of swamp to give the Huahuang sight of the sun. Before long, we could have an endless supply. And though he makes them eat the sprouts, he has been wondering what would happen if he allowed her to plant them. Bao pushes the thought out of his head. It's better to not waste time on food they may never eat. Eat the sprout because they are green and yummy, he is told, his father said. Don't throw them into the dirt. Don't dishonor the fairy mother, Aoku. Allow her to give you what you need. But when his father died, his mother decided not to move again and stayed here and other people agreed it was a fine place and joined them. His brothers and he leveraged his sisters and nieces and more men came, willing to help. This clan is his family now. Fifty families hunting and cultivating the surrounding jungle to their needs. The ocean is a constant supply of most everything. But he can see what An wants to do clearly. 
The sprout is pushed a few inches into the black jungle forest soil underwater, where it fights to reach the sun, growing and growing like its wild cousins in the jungle, until once large, drops its precious berries into the water. Making something as unpredictable as nature heal seems like magic, and Bao prefers functional thought over metaphysical. He decides to join his mother-in-law out where the muddy sand turns red like clay. She holds a basket for his kids to fill. He looks for his wife but doesn't see her. He takes a step on a vine-laced sandal but is stopped by a small hand tugging on his arm. Cha? He turns towards the little voice and there stands his youngest son. Next to the little boy is An, much older now than the girl he was promised but still and always his life mate. She looks scared. There is the taste of Lakwang Kwan on the air. I fear the Dragon Lord's treachery in this magic. His son stands nude in the midday sun between them. He is nude because why bother dressing him, since he is of the age clothes just stop fitting too soon to justify making them. Bao wishes he could run around naked, but to get snagged or bruised in the area he covers with his loincloth make being dressed a priority. An wears a woven silkworm gown that flows past her knees. She stained it herself with the little red berries even the fish won't eat. As he is about to remind her to keep the fabric out of her mouth, another tremor hits. He digs his toes into the earth to maintain balance. His youngest, whom everyone calls Yit Bao because of how much he looks like Bao, grabs onto his father's leg. When the tremor passes and An says, I do not think they should be out where it is most dangerous to swim. What if the water comes back? It's a salient point, but Bao explains, Maybe this is truly a gift from Al Kul, that even with a well-tied raft or well-constructed canoe, I'd never get this much food. Before he can add to the thought, it Bao exclaims, Cha! Bao looks down at his youngest son tugging on his shoulder pouch. There is fear on the five-year-old's face, fear that Bao feels mirrored in his heart as he turns and sees a brown wall of water overtake those deepest out on the sand. The water rushes over his mother-in-law and their children, even knowing they have to be dead under fifty feet of water, An is moving to reach them. With skin puckering with fear, Bao makes one desperate grab at his wife's arm. If he misses, he would have left her. Instead, he finds himself with her over one shoulder and it Bao over the other. And he runs. Runs like the earth-breaking wall of mud were the Lord Dragon hunting him for his very soul. But An fights and claws at her mate's back. She must reach her children. Does he not know they are dying now, there, mere feet under that wall of mud? He must let her get them. No, she screams as if her insides were breaking free of her body, leaving her hollow and useless. She fights as Bao struggles to outrace the water, short brown legs pumping and breathing hard, the water lazily gobbling up everything that once made sense behind them. Others run but are not so lucky. Yet she curses him. She curses him for dooming her to a life without. In the two handful of days that have passed since the sea disappeared and came back again angry, Bao straddles a half-finished raft. His hope is they become better off for having built it. He, nor what's left of his family, have had much to eat and drink. Bao avoids the ocean. The idea of eating a fish that has eaten someone he loves has played more than once through his imagination. So he has sought other food where the ground is still firm, miles from the shore. Even here... Everything has been turned upside down. The jungle seems empty of animal and all food seems plucked free of branches. So now he starves, while his family remains barely fed, as they camp in a shallow cave Bao dug into the root system of a banyan tree 
heavy with underripe figs. The years of fruit the monkeys allowed to fall and rot have added a flavor to the air that does not quite sit right with Bao. It's sweet but sickly. He stays because monkeys are an early warning system for bigger predators that may want to snack on Bao and his family. None of them like being alone in the wilds, monkeys included. They sit cuddling high above, silent as if the very world were ending and all they can do is wait. It just might be. But Bao has to stay busy. An sleeps safe behind a thatched door she wove herself, it Bao by her side. He thinks what would have happened if he lost her. How the world would stop mattering. How he lies to himself that he would have stopped at nothing to reclaim her body. He would have fought Long Quan himself. He shakes himself out of the hot sorrow that wraps itself around his eyes at his own failure to protect his family, and concentrates once again on the task before him. He plans on taking his new vessel out on the river to check his traps and forage for food. Cutting the bamboo poles free of the ground took one whole day. Another was spent on trimming the poles to the needed size and finding hundreds of lengths of vine which An wove into thick ropes. The construction is over by the time An is up. I will take it bow out to look for food, she said, stoking the fire she banked before sliding in next to him on the sleeping mat she also wove. Don't go too far. If I can't find meat, neither can the tigers. She nods in agreement. Grab an end. Together they lift the raft and carry it the few hundred feet to the river's edge. It slides off the bank, and for the narrowest of moments, Bao thinks it's going to sink. But instead, it bobs up to ride high on the water. Bao climbs on, and with a push against the bank with his oar, he is off. He waves at An and sees her wave back before turning his attention fully to his fight against the current upstream with quick and deliberate pole thrusts. Tomorrow he will add to the raft and eventually make it big enough to move his family somewhere else. He fantasizes about this new home as he floats down the river, scanning for life. Not just food life, but people life. He hasn't seen any other survivors in all this time either, and the sky blurs a hazy green, and An has whispered to him she knows. We have been betrayed by Lak Long. Soon he will come and finish us. Don't be silly. We are alive because of our mother Aoku. If she wished us dead, we would be under the ocean also. And Bao knows An wishes she were under the ocean with her babies. And if it weren't for Itbao, she would have gone back to the waters, weighted herself with stones, and joined them all. She told him as much after he tied her down with vines and reminded her of her remaining charge. It took days for some semblance of hope to return to her eyes, enough at least for him to untie her and let her help. Bao is almost convinced they are the last people alive on earth, but he has an obligation now to his youngest son to keep him alive. The only water comes from leaves dumped into cups. He upends one cup, a coconut shell halved, and drinks his fill. But after, his mouth is sticky still, with needing more. When it rains again, An will collect as much water as she can, but they have a short supply of bowls, and is forced to fold containers out of huge fan leaves. As he floats, he scans for signs of yams, avocados, or anything, but it's like the entire jungle is void of food. Even the high-hung coconuts are gone. Everything is difficult, even Itbao fights them daily. He misses his siblings, and they have learned he doesn't like to be refused freedom. In his old life, he was able to go wherever his chubby three-year-old legs could take him. Thankfully, he was not where the sea came rushing back. Thinking about the wall of water ushers in the sound, a roar like only the father Lord Dragon could make. But instead of coming to save his fairy bride from an evil hawk, he was intent on killing her children. 
everything he ever made or traded for, gone. All he has left is what he makes out of necessity, daily. His new raft floats well down the brown muddy river, low, but that's okay, he decides, as he approaches the location of the first bird trap he set yesterday near the bank. He tied about a dozen, hoping for a catch. More than he usually would, but usually he wouldn't need to worry about food because it always comes in some form or another, and always to those who work for it. But after the earth shook and the waters rose angry, and despite what he told on, he doubts the fairy mother even cares about her children anymore. His stomach growls. He hasn't eaten much since. The three of them are barely existing, and if the traps aren't flush with food, Bao knows he might have to make a hard choice. Let his family starve, or hold hands with them as they go to the mountain together by force of his own hand. No. Bao shakes the idea out of his head. They will make it. He is going to survive, and so are his wife and child. His boy. His legacy. Bracing the oar against the river bottom, he angles toward a clump of reeds. He is looking for some wild Luahuang. He spotted this clump yesterday but was hesitant to swim across the still swollen river. The bright green stalks are only good to forage if they are heavy with beige berries. The berries can be cooked down into a black grain that haunts his culinary dreams. How An can make it soft and delicious, he has no clue. That alone made it worth caring for her and her parents. Well, that and the comfort of her warm hands, and then, when his mind naturally turns to all the happiness of the family they created together, he stops those thoughts immediately. His family is dead. He has only a mate and one child now. The thought of progeny makes him think of his own mother dead so long now. He doesn't know what he would do if he knew she found herself alone and drowning in the waters near their home. A home she built far away from those waters because the spirits keep changing their minds as to where they want the shore. He floats up to the wild Lahuang but decides it's too young to pluck, so he leaves it. Certain An could work her magic on it when Chu Kui comes back full and glowing white, but no sooner. Bao doesn't exactly know. This sits beyond his intellectual capabilities. He can hunt and kill and forage, build things with just the right amount of instruction, but what happens after a person stops moving is beyond him. If he works hard and collects enough food, they'll survive. That's all he knows. His wife conjures ideas out of nowhere and makes them a reality. It's her magic. He is confident only because she survived, and if she pulls herself out of the funk, they have a chance at continuing that survival. And they, all three of them, will, because they always do, and death feels impossible. He pushes the oar off the bottom. His first trap isn't much further on. The sun burns straight down through the canopy, casting a green sheen through the layers and layers of leaves above. It falls to reach the fern and grass-covered ground along the riverbank. The dappled shadows play against the rippling water as he aims towards a slight outcropping of mossy bank. Near there is his first trap. He plants the long stick he is using as an oar and leans back. The only sound is the river laughing its eternal chuckle and the buzz of insects. It could be peaceful if not for the heavy stillness that marks the great loss of life. His slight shoulders bunch as he plants the oar again. He is so far happy with the raft. It will serve him until the days are short, longer if he changes the vines out when they start to wear. As the day lengthens, the weather drips with hot wet because it's monsoon season and the brown viscous river is swollen and stinks with decaying plant matter and thick wet mud. He lands the raft and a cobra juts erect from the reeds, 
swaying as if to an unheard rhythm. Its tongue flickers, its black hood and gaping mouth a good body length away. He quickly decides not to attempt to take it home to An. Under better circumstances he may have, but the risk versus reward here wasn't worth it, so he ignores it, because it will eventually realize Bao means it no harm, before going about its day doing what Bao is doing, hunting to survive. Bao knows the cobra doesn't want to eat him, and is certain he startled the snake while it partook on its lunch. He makes a mental note to check the reeds for any leftovers as he approaches his trap. The sight of the bright red feathers makes him immediately happy. It's a jungle fowl, the funny mean-spirited bird that never left the ground. He removes the bird and resets the trap, returning to the raft with the bird draped over one shoulder. In his excitement at eating, he almost forgets to check the grass for the cobra's lunch. As he approaches, he swats the grass with his oar and sees a black shadow dart into the water. He recognizes it as the retreating cobra and decides to not take another shot as it disappears with the current. Happy to have at least something to return home with, and certain his other traps will be just as full now, he almost decides to leave the nine eggs sitting in what obviously is the nest the bird over his shoulder made. In the past, he would because he knows they will hatch and grow and he can eat them then. But the idea of eggs cooked in heated water makes his shrunken stomach ache with need, so he grabs all but one. That one he leaves with a prayer to the fairy mother to help it grow big and strong. Now with a bird and eight eggs in hand, he is excited to get the rest of the day's quest done and get back home to An. Bao returns and makes An feel rich when he hands her eight eggs, one dead cleaned and defeathered bird, three underripe mangoes, and one yam. She smiles at him and when asked if she found anything, she waves her hand over some newly grown watercress pulled from a small cove off the river. Happy for a distraction from her thoughts, she begins preparing a meal. First, she buries the yams to roast under the coals she rakes off their little fire. The scrawny bird she lays on top of the coals, and immediately it begins protesting and sputters and pops. As she peels and seeds the mangoes to split three ways, she hopes this time Bao decides to eat what she offers. She has been worried about him not eating, but she knows there is nothing she can say to make him do what he thinks will prevent her and eat Bao from surviving. Soon enough, with the smells of cooking food making Bao reel with hunger, he has served half the chicken, a full yam and a whole mango. He and Itbao wolf down the food. An holds off. She divided the food and gave herself some, but her sadness makes her stomach feel solid, like a cold, hard rock. She thinks of her children, dead under the water, and here in front of her was another mother dead, but her children alive and in her pouch. An can feel the eggs in her pouch. They are heavy, too heavy to not have chicks in them almost ready to hatch. She feels them like a treasure. She can cook them. She has many times in the past. She also knows that eventually they will hatch and make baby fowls with greasy feathers. How soon or even how that magic works, she is not sure. Bao finishes his meal and yawns, finds a spot on the ground, and quickly falls into sleep. An watches him slip into sleep and lets him. She will cuddle next to him later, maybe even coax him into making her pregnant again. He is a good mate and she feels bad he works so hard keeping them alive, even double so that An has decided to betray him. When enough time has passed to move from curious to enraged, An is unsurprised when Bao confronts her about the missing nutrition. I can count, he says, and I know how many eggs there were, many more than I have seen eaten. 
The answer is none because that is the number on released from her possession. But she remains silent eyes on the ground because it does not matter anymore. The eggs are gone. Where are the eggs on? He screams. He has brought nothing back again from a day up the river but frustration. She hates that he returns with nothing. Nothing means death, and she has wished all day for something to take the edge off the gnawing ache in her belly. An's eyes slide up from the ground to find hatred contorting her partner's face. This is hard. She did what she did for him as much as for her and the little one. She averts her gaze to see their son playing with the doll she thatched out of a reed. He suffers too much, but she is in too deep to admit anything, so she doubles down. I slept on them. They all broken. She imagines Bao's first thought is to kill her, smash her skull with a rock, then it bow, and hang his own body from one of the many present vines. Why continue? Everyone else is dead. Why shouldn't they be also? But as things tend to do, she sees his thoughts balance instead. Yes, he hates her for making him hurt with hunger through a stupid mistake, but also there are other eggs to be found out in the jungle. As if realizing this also, and without further fuss, he stands, climbs aboard his raft, and pushes out into the river. Before his little raft disappears behind a bend in the river and she sighs in relief. One day he will thank her for this. Plus his work for the day is not done. He'll return now when he can feed his family, and not a moment sooner. An watches him dip the oar into the river and shove, hating to lie, but it's for his own good. He honors their child with his efforts, but misses the point of effort altogether. Used efficiently, effort should minimize itself. So that's what she has done. Not lied, no. She has instead made plans to lift the burden of survival from Bao's shoulders. She can't help but smile as she peers under the flap to her shoulder satchel, greeted by the insistent cheeps of four baby chickens demanding food from their new mother. She smiles at them somehow feeling her plan spreading throughout the future as they cry. Soon, she whispers, knowing Bao won't disappoint them again, because even if he does, he'll keep trying over and over until he doesn't anymore, or dies trying. Brian Aiello hosts weekly podcasts on creativity and speculative fiction and is a writer of fantasy, sci-fi, and the macabre. Raised on Florida's Gulf Coast, Brian served in the Army, graduated from the University of South Florida, and now calls Brooklyn home. For more of his fiction and links to his podcasts, visit www.brianiello.com and follow him on Twitter at Briello. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps us find a bigger audience. For more information on Brick Moon and special offers, Sign up for the Brick Moon Fiction newsletter at brickmoonfiction.com. Thank you for listening.